For those who would argue, as some have with me, that, well, they come because they and their spouse really like to listen to the music, but they're not there for anyone else. I would argue, if you if you can imagine the greatest concert ever of your life and what that was like at the end when everybody jumps to their feet and unanimous applause, think about that same exact production again, but you're the only one in the hall. Whether you realize it or not, you actually are coming together because you want to be with other people. You want to share that experience. And when today do we bring together thousands of people with that common experience? We don't. I mean, even a sports game, there's opposing sides, right? So um, I, I think the arts and, and perhaps uniquely an, an orchestra symphony experience provide that opportunity, which today is sorely needed. From the studios of Kink Radio, it's the Portland 50, a podcast series about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The Portland 50 series is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution, serving our community since 1950. I'm your host, Peggy LaPointe. Today, I feature Scott Showalter and Peter Fajola. Scott is the president and CEO of the Oregon Symphony, and Peter is an associate concertmaster. The Oregon Symphony is the oldest orchestra west of the Mississippi, and under Scott's leadership is seeing record ticket sales and an expansion of their recordings. Following the interview, we came up with a possible new tagline, Oregon Symphony, very sexy cool. I started piano when I was and gave concerts through college. I'm no musicologist, so I have to partner with many around me to know exactly uh, the best makeup of what we do over the course of the season, but I've got great partners to do just that, and it, it makes it fun. And it helps you understand the musician's point of view as well. Absolutely. I mean, that's sort of an added benefit of it. So you've been here since 2014, so four years. Yeah, this is my fifth season. And your fifth season. And your background, besides performing throughout your college years has been working with symphonies. Actually, I was in higher education for many years. Really? So I worked for Stanford University and then the University of Chicago before I was recruited to be one of the vice presidents of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. And it was while I was there that I met Thomas Lauderdale of Pink Martini fame. He's on the board of the Oregon Symphony and proposed that I come up north and run the Oregon Symphony. And at first I said, thanks, but I'm fine in L.A. <laughs> And then over the better part of the year of coming up and meeting people, I saw really what an opportunity this was. Transitioning from education to um, working with symphony, how was that? So in my experience, I was always handling external relations work, fundraising, alumni relations, communications, strategic planning, kind of the business focus. I have an MBA as as well. And so I, I was always externally focused with these larger nonprofits in the education space. So transitioning into the arts, having a background in the arts, it's actually, it was, it, it was smooth. People will look at my resume and think like, oh, that was quite a switch. And in fact, it makes perfect sense to me given my background. Nice. And since you've been here, um, there are a number of accomplishments you can hang your hat on. You have uh, increased the budget due to the record ticket sales and donations that have come forth since that time, expanded recordings, and the Oregon Symphony has seen the greatest growth among all American orchestras. That's got to feel pretty good for just 
now five seasons of work here in the Oregon Symphony. That's right. Before I was here, uh, the budget was $14 million annually, and we're $21 million this year, so 50%, as you say, over the last five seasons. And we've been balancing the budget thanks to those record ticket sales and, and donations, and there's no guarantee moving forward. So now we're going to be focused on ensuring that we will be around for the next 120-some years. Well, and with the symphony, and, and we'll go into this probably a little bit later, but um, the arts certainly suffer when the economy does. I mean, um, the Oregon Symphony had to shut down uh, during the Great Depression. So you have to be mindful of that. Each year you might have a big year, but then you have to be mindful for when, uh, unfortunately, the ebb and flow of the economy happens as well. So That's right, Peggy. You know this works so well. You <laughs> should you know, you should come on board. Uh, no, I will leave that to you. Um, and Peter, please tell us a little bit about your background. You are uh, a Portland native. Uh, actually, I'm a Salem native. Oh, I grew so up in Salem. It's okay. You could have just I, gone with that, but, yeah. <laughs> but an Oregonian. Oregonian, true and true, true and true. Uh, so I grew up in Salem, and I went to U of O for two years, and I transferred down to the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, where I finished up my degree, my bachelor degree. And I played in the San Francisco Opera as an extra for a number of years and got lucky and moved around the country and played in a couple other orchestras and got very lucky to come back home and be able to join this Oregon Symphony that I grew up listening to since I was a little kid. You grew up listening to because your parents were in the Oregon Symphony. Uh, your parents, parents, Leah and, and Peter, played violin. Leah and Peter, yeah. My dad was in the orchestra I think he got in around mid-60s, and he was in the orchestra for 10 or 11 years. And then my mom overlapped with him by a few years. She got in under, under Larry Smith, Lawrence Layton Smith. We know him as Larry Smith. <laughs> my dad was hired under um, Jacques Singer, who was here from 1962 through roughly 73. Larry Smith took over in 73, and that's about the time my mom came. And then my mom and I overlapped by 19 years. Oh, that would have been fantastic. And there was only one day where I was on stage with both of them. I won the Corbett competition here that the Oregon Symphony used to produce. And the winner of the competition would always get a chance to play a, a concerto movement with the orchestra. And both my parents were in the orchestra that particular day. So all three of us were on stage once. That, that's neat. That was maybe too scary for everybody else. <laughs> well, that's got to be that's got to be an anomaly. That's got to be a first and only, right? Uh, I'm not sure. But both was, parents playing with their parent, son, yeah. also. I think so. Maybe we'll we'll see if that ever happens again. Okay. <laughs> so it was certainly have, scary for me anyway. I bet it was. So they have military brats. You're you're a symphony brat. Yes. <laughs> grew, grew up <laughs> in the organization. I like that term. So yeah. Easily. So that's what you. Can so refer my dad to would as. bring me up from Salem to come and hear the orchestra when I was just a little kid, and it was always just very striking. I mean, when you're growing up, you know, when you're f five, six, seven years old, you don't even know what a big city is, what it looks like. And we'd drive up I-5 and I'd get this glimpse of the mountain and the east side of Portland and then we'd see the downtown as we come into it. And it was just kind of mind-boggling to this little, you know, seven-year-old kid from Salem. And I loved it. I loved coming and hearing the orchestra. It was the orchestra that I grew up listening to. And it's still my favorite orchestra. So what did it feel like coming home, if you will, 
because you were in Louisville and Knoxville in those orchestras. Correct. What those were it, my previous orchestras. Yeah. Then. What did it feel like coming home then to the Oregon Symphony after that? Well, I was fiendishly taking a lot of auditions, and I actually came very close to winning a, uh, a job here as third chair, the assistant concertmaster, the previous year from the one I actually won. Um, but they didn't feel comfortable giving it to anybody at the time, and they offered me a section position, and I said, thanks, but no thanks, I have another job in Knoxville, so I'm going to go there for a year, and I'll try again later. And I got lucky the second time I actually won the audition and then came back home. <laughs> and it felt great. I mean, my, my parents lived in Salem, so I could go see them all the time. Uh, my mom was in the orchestra still, so she and I would connect a lot. And after rehearsals, she'd come over to my house, you know, up here in Beaverton and spend some time here so she wouldn't have to drive all the way back to Salem every time. And it worked out really well because I got to see them and they got to see me quite a bit. And uh, I got to be able to play in this magnificent orchestra. So you obviously come from a family of musicians. Scott, you as well, or is this? Not professional, no. but, but everyone in my family plays an instrument of some kind as yeah. an avocation. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely in the blood of both of you guys. <laughs> so the history of the Oregon Symphony, 1896 I have as uh, when the Oregon Symphony played their first concert, and at that time they were known as the Portland Symphony. And that made them the oldest, or sorry, th that does make them the oldest orchestra west of the Mississippi, which surprised me that Seattle and San Francisco in Los Angeles, nothing? We are indeed the oldest. In fact, we're one of the oldest in the United States. So <laughs> while we are the oldest west of the Mississippi, we're among a handful that have been around for more than 100 years. And that's pretty uh it, it surprised me. Uh, Portland is a much younger city than Philadelphia. Boston, New York. Right, New York, right, absolutely. It was, as I mentioned, the Depression that put the Oregon Symphony on hold, I think I saw for eight or nine years uh, before they came back um, and full force and resumed operations. When I came to town, James DePriest was the music director. And through my email exchange with folks at the Oregon Symphony, I said, you know, James DePriest came... Uh, and talked to it less here at Kink many, many times. Um, they had a really wonderful relationship, and he was just a personality, a person that uh, Portland wrapped its arms around. He was the music director for 23 years. Is that the longest that a music director has been with the Oregon Symphony? I yes, so. I think so for the music yeah. director. Norman Layden was here for more years as our pops right. conductor. Um, you talk about... James DePriest, who was familiarly known as Jimmy, yeah. he did a couple of things that really brought us to where we are today. One, he transformed the orchestra into being a full-time ensemble, so mm -hmm. it had been part-time before his tenure. And the second thing is he brought about the change, thanks to an anchor gift from the Schnitzer family and contributions by others, brought us from the Civic Auditorium into what today is known as the Schnitz, the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall, and providing a home for the Oregon Symphony. So those two things together really um, professionalized this orchestra, and then he, too, added a whole recordings program that continues to this day to great success. And that all starts under Jimmy. Yeah, he had, in many ways, a lasting impact on the symphony and in Portland. And then Carlos Kelmar, 
I think that Kink was the first media outlet that he had an interview with. Uh, he was brought in. I remember that day when he was brought in and did an interview with Les, and that was kind of neat as well. And he's been at the helm for a dozen years now. This is the 16th. 16th Sixteenth. He has also had made his mark. Didn't he take the symphony to Carnegie Hall? Absolutely. It was the toast in the New Yorker at the yeah. time in 2011 and multiple Grammy nominations mm -hmm. under his belt. A lot of our recordings during the season that don't make it onto a CD but are available for um, uh, listening to online are picked up by American Public Media. So today we have a listenership beyond the schnitz of some 16 million people globally. Young and old go to the symphony and continue to do so. What is it? Why do you think that is? It's very ac accessible to Portlanders. You don't have to get fancy and dressed up. You can go there in your cowboy boots and your jeans and enjoy it as much as the person next to you who's in a full-length ball gown. I think that's right, Peggy. You've got in an orchestra both a local imprint, that is what we do in and around this community, the people that we bring into the hall, as well as those that we touch when we go out with our hundreds of engagement programs around the state. So that's what's important in terms of what we can do in our own backyard. At the same time, we have, as we've been talking about, a national and international artistic brand. And so it's important in my mind, particularly here in Portland and Oregon and Southwest Washington, that we're first and foremost um, the, the hometown band, mm -hmm. as it were. Right? And um, that can mean casual dress, but it means accessibility and familiarity and, and artistic excellence at the same time. People want to come because they're going to get a great experience through and through, whether li listening to Shostakovich or The Nightmare Before Christmas, like it's all going to be good. And we've got such a broad range of repertoire now that there's literally nothing I can imagine that somebody can't connect to, from country western music to Lily Tomlin to the National Acrobats of China to core classical repertoire to kids. I mean, we're doing it all. So you talk about accessibility and familiarity and just this hometown imprint. We're trying to be all things to, to people in, in our backyard. Yeah, and it's, it's worked. You mentioned, you know, the whole region and the Portland Symphony was what it was called when it was first established. It became the Oregon Symphony in the 60s, I think it was. I believe it was 1967. Jacques Singer, who uh, renamed, had us rename. Yeah, and uh, it was done to reflect the commitment to serve the or to serve Oregonians statewide and Southwest Washington, because it does draw from from the whole region. And the other thing that you mentioned, and I made a note of this as well, um, over 250 programs in schools, libraries, neighborhoods, correctional facilities, sports mm -hmm. venues, and retirement homes. Immigration centers, on and on, right? right. So we, we want to connect to people who can't, for whatever reason, get to our hall. One of the programs, just as an example, uh, we started this year is called the Lullaby Project, where we have singer-songwriters working with women in the homeless community to understand their stories and compose and record original lullabies for their children. And the goal is to strengthen maternal bonds through music. That's the kind of work that we can do beyond the concert hall that has an immediate and um, resonating impact. Well, m music has the ability to reach everybody. In, we all have that music language in us, even if, even if we don't speak the same language. And I saw that story on the Lullaby Project. 
it's really a beautiful project. How many times have you had a chance to go out and, and work with the women? Because uh, it's mothers. It is mothers in the homeless community, yes. Um, so we started this program the last year, and we've got full funding for it, thanks to a generous donor for the next couple years as well. Um, we did a live uh, recording session at the old church and uh, have a CD that's available of that music. One of the selections was chosen by Carnegie Hall to be performed live, and it was web-streamed at the time. Storm Large is among the uh, many singer-songwriters uh, who, who wrote pieces on that album and uh and we look forward to continuing it but yeah the, it's 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 a great example of how music whatever your background and i sometimes hear from people well i don't i don't enjoy classical music or i you know i'd rather stay at home and listen and and in whatever form you listen to music it has this ability to unite inspire educate and heal mm-hmm. And whether you're coming to be inspired and, and sit back and you get, don't have to, but you get to turn off your cell phones for a couple of hours and be overcome by the, the sheer beauty of music, that's a privilege. And if you can't get to the hall or can't afford the ticket, we are going to be coming to, to neighborhoods. We periodically produce free concerts and programs around the community. Peter's active in a, in a program called Classical Up Close that has, you know, couple dozen programs over the course of the season typically in the spring and we we want to move music forward as we think about it not just on the stage at the schnitz but in and around the state and in around our immediate communities and why that's that's the big question why is this important so I, i go back to the power of music and whether or not we realize that it is in all of us we learned the abcs to a tune written by Mozart. And when we die, there will be organ music played at our memorial service. Or a violin. From <laughs> beginning to end. or vi- Yes, and likely, yes, exactly, Peter. Credit where credit's due. Um, there, it's, it's in the music that we listen to at home, perhaps, and even if we're not classical music aficionados, imagine any great movie without an orchestral score to it. You just have to come to our movie series to appreciate just the power that music brings to that largely visual experience. So it's it's even if it's not in our blood as it is for me and for Peter, um, it's in all of us. And certainly music education and what we do in partnership with Title One schools and Portland Public and um, and other communities around around this region. I mean, that music is just. Uh, it's just a fundamental human right, and it should be something that is taught in schools and is something that's appreciated lifelong in whatever form you can get it. I heartily agree, and talked about funding, certainly Portland Public Schools. I've got two kids in Portland Public Schools. The arts are things that are cut back upon, if not cut out entirely, and so being able to reach these audiences, especially kids who have just... Uh, a, a love of music and they don't care that they don't understand it, air quotes, uh, and, and what it's called. They know good music when they hear it. And, you know, you can go to any concert and you can see a child move instinctively. And so being able to reach kids uh, where they are and bring them up with that love of music is wonderful. One of those programs that we have to excite kids in just the way that you describe is called Link Up. Mm. 
it's a partnership that we have again with Carnegie Hall where we work with dozens of schools throughout the year. They learn in classrooms to sing and to play the recorder to certain pieces that they then come and get to perform from their seats at the Schnitz alongside the Oregon Symphony, including Peter, up on the stage um, together, those pieces that they've learned. And you can see their eyes light up when somehow miraculously the musicians on stage know the very pieces that they've been learning in their classrooms. And it's just that kind of hook to see professional musicians playing at the top of the professional game to get kids excited. And we've seen in those schools that we're working with a 30% uptick in the interest of people wanting to learn instruments after that. And so it, sometimes it's just the modeling, the example that we have to set um, in order to do a lot of good uh, far beyond a single performance. Mm -hmm. And Peter, of the programs that the Oregon Symphony has done throughout the years, I mean, you get a front row seat uh, sure <laughs> and get <laughs> the audience reaction as well. What are some of your favorite events, you know, whether it's the uh, movie scores that are playing during the films or the artists that are brought in special. What are some of your favorites throughout the years? I, j I just have so many favorites. I'm, we only instance, have certain amount. We I only know. have all day, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> for instance, tonight we're going to Salem. Then we're playing here uh, in Portland for the next couple of nights. And we happen to be playing the Rachmaninoff Symphonic Dances. It is absolutely my favorite orchestral piece of all time. Mm -hmm. Just bar none. And it's just most wonderful piece. It was the very last thing that Rachmaninoff wrote before deciding to not write anything and then dying a few years later. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm very lucky that I get to sit right next to our concertmaster, Sarah Kwok, best violinist around and a wonderful leader. I'm right under the conductor's nose. I can't possibly make a mistake that he doesn't know of. <laughs> Um, I get to sit right in the, I'm not sure exactly how to put it, just everybody's sound comes right at me and then goes out to the audience. Uh, I'm just right in the front middle area where everybody's pointing and I get to hear everybody on stage blasting this sort great music. The eye of the hurricane, sort if of, you will. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it really is, it's pretty amazing. I mean, you can sit in the last row of the balcony and still get all of that sound, but there's something really visceral about being right there on, on the edge of the stage with that. Uh, it's very neat. Uh, I do have a lot of favorite shows, if you will. Yeah. The gospel show that we do every year is just unbelievable. We have a great choir that comes up and sings with us and uh, led by Charles Floyd and a choir actually that the Oregon Symphony put together from 32 area churches. So right. it's a program that's been going on for, for celebrating the 20th anniversary in just a couple of weeks. 20th anniversary next week, yeah. So just have many different favorites. Um, I'm just ecstatic to be here. For me, some of the favorite concerts have been the multimedia productions that we've done in recent years. So we've brought to not change the music, in fact, to, to heighten that experience. So Bluebeard's Castle, a one-act opera, was brought to life through hundreds of pieces of larger-than-life artisan glass, custom-made by Dale Chihuly. 
And that was just visually and from an auditory perspective, uh, perspective just, just stunning. And we did uh, production with craft art video that was projected on the walls and the ceiling to Messian's Tarangalila, which is a crazy piece and a bucket list piece, as some of your colleagues, Peter, have told me. And we performed that alongside this original video art. And we had three sold-out houses to what otherwise would have been a, a difficult piece, I think, for people to connect to, even if you have a background in music. And it, that, again, was, was sort of stunning. And we worked with Michael Curry of The Lion King and London Olympics fame. And you know, we're doing other productions like that this year um, and in future years. So it's even if even if someone might say, well, classical music isn't my favorite, they've never seen anything like the kinds of commissions, uh, visual and, and, and music that, that we're bringing to this stage uh, right here in Portland. The Anchor series last year we did was both visual and social in nature. We brought to the stage three difficult, timely themes, and we did it in a nonpartisan way, immigration, the environment, and homelessness. And the last production was uh, heralded as something that is really changing how classical music today is relevant to the communities outside the concert hall. Joshua Bell was on the first half of this program where we debuted the commission on the second half. It was a 50-minute, 13-movement work on the scourge of deep poverty and, and housing insecurity. Josh heard the second half and came backstage afterward, and he said, that was genius. You have to record that because that's Pulitzer material. Mm-hmm. And so, in fact, we did as the first production in this season. We recorded it, we reprised it, and we created it as a community opportunity where we invited people in for free and asked them to give what they could, and 100% of that was turned back around to the organizations that support the, the homeless community. We don't have many opportunities to connect in that way, but if we're always thinking about how is it that we do more than just make an artistic statement for those who are privileged enough and available to come and afford it on the days that we're, that we're playing, but we think about that connection and, and sort of ra- raising all boats around our community through education, through these kinds of innovative works and performing ever at the high level that, that Peter and his colleagues are capable of. That's where we really, I think, bring together a community. You asked Peggy earlier, too, about you know, why do we care these days about this, this kind of art form, which many would say is antiquated. And to that, I would add that they've been predicting the death of classical music for the last 400 years. So I think we're all safe, <laughs> at least for a while. Um, but it's, it's an opportunity where we come together irrespective of background, socioeconomic, ethnic, partisanship, whatever. You come together and you together are cheering for the people at the front of the room. You want a holistic um, experience. And for those who would argue, as some have with me, that, well, they come because they and their spouse really like to listen to the music, but they're not there for anyone else. I would argue if you if you can imagine the greatest concert ever of your life and what that was like at the end when everybody jumps to their feet and unanimous applause, think about that same exact production again, but you're the only one in the hall. 
whether you realize it or not, you actually are coming together because you want to be with other people. You want to share that experience. And when today do we bring together thousands of people with that common experience? We don't. I mean, even a sports game, there's opposing sides, right? So um, I, I think the arts and and perhaps uniquely an, an orchestra symphony experience provide that opportunity, which today is sorely needed. Mm-hmm, definitely. You're listening to King's Portland 50 series. I'll continue my conversation with Scott Showalter and Peter Frajola in a moment, but I wanted to thank our sponsor. The Portland 50 series is presented by Jaguar Land River Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land River Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution, serving our community since 1950. Now back to my conversation with Scott Showalter and Peter Frajola. Scott is the president and CEO of the Oregon Symphony, and Peter is an associate concertmaster. The Oregon Symphony is the oldest orchestra west of the Mississippi, and under Scott's leadership is seeing record ticket sales and an expansion of their recordings. Following the interview, we came up with a possible new tagline, Oregon Symphony, very sexy, cool. I'm glad you brought up that series um, called The Sounds of Home in which you touched upon homelessness in the environment and immigration. And there was another, uh, one of the other ones that you didn't mention uh, was the um, commissioned work uh, for a play called, and correct me if- Azan. Thank you. Uh, which loosely translates to a call to prayer. Yeah, okay. And so this was exploring the immigration using um, accounts from survivors of a chemical attack uh, in Kurdish population in Iraq in 1980s. and. You know, we talk about how music can move you, and then uh, when you know and understand the story behind a particular evening of music, uh, it becomes even more uh, powerful. Right. And this was an opportunity really to not talk about immigration per se or policy, uh, let alone politics. Or the This was something that we've been thinking about for years. And then when we were the, became the first American orchestra to commission a play that would be performed at the same time as new music was performed, and it's on the subject of immigration, that was, that was powerful in itself. But the entire program, we had two piano concertos on the first half, which is uncommon. Schoenberg, who was himself an immigrant, and Gershwin, who was the son of immigrants, um, was performed by a pianist out of Russia who's emigrated to Germany and the United States. Um, we had this play that we just talked about and the, the piece on the second half that was, Azan was written by an Indian uh, immigrant playwright. Carlos Kalmar is an immigrant, our music director. 20% of our orchestra are immigrants. So it, it wasn't anything pointed. It was about the power that musicians the world over bring to our lives. And so that play was important on a, on a number of levels. Um, and, and it just, I, well, Peter, I'm curious, you're, you're, for me, it just, it just had me thinking, gosh, this is, this, is a, this is a way to connect and think about music and art that's otherwise not being done today. Yeah, the, um, the immigration part is, is just, you can't get away from it. I mean, everybody comes from somewhere. Everybody goes other places. We don't all just stay in our own little hometown forever, at, or at least 
we try to get out. And I think immigration is, is that important where we need to celebrate it and we need to uh, make sure that, that it's accessible. And I think uh, the Oregon Symphony does a great job with that, with uh, having many players that are from somewhere else. These, these issues, while they were important for us in the last season to think about, well, what would it mean in the context of the sounds of home immigration being the search for home, the environment, the home in which we all live, and uh, homelessness being the obvious need for a home, it was a way to, to, as I've already said, think about connecting to community. It's not forever going to define who we are. We do 100-some programs over the course of the season. Uh, we appeal to, on, you know, on all levels, pops and kids and uh, the music of U2 and Katie Lang and, I, you know, sort of on and on. This was sort of one particular way, but I, lest we think that in the next 120-some years we're going to, you know, increasingly have a, have a focus uh, in this way. It was, uh, it, was, it was important last season, and there will certainly be themes of what we do, the Lullaby Project and the like in, in the future, but we won't always be doing uh, these, these themes in quite this way. It's a lot of work as you're describing all of the special projects, uh, the Lullaby Project, the Sounds of Home, the Intel piece, which right. we'll get right. to in a little bit. So you've got these special projects. You've got the regular uh, concerts, what we think of, you know, just the regular features of the Oregon Symphony, and then uh, bringing in artists, uh, like I've seen Ben Folds uh, perform and Natalie yep. Merchant. Right. Uh, that's a lot of work. And so, and so not only is it a lot of work, but coming up with these ideas. Uh, have, and you mentioned that Sounds of Home had been simmering for a while. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, the, <laughs> the sight lines are, are so long, right? So, I mean, we are, we are talking to composers about commissions in the 21-22 season already. Right? I mean, you've got long sight lines for, for some of these things. And we've got an artistic planning group of... Uh, myself and our, our chief artistic planner, along with many musicians, members of the marketing team and the general manager of the Oregon Symphony and his team. And so we all come together and we talk on all these levels from popular programming to multimedia to commissions and what we're doing this year and what we're doing several seasons out because everything has an arc. There's an arc within a single piece of music that a composer has developed. There's an arc over the course of the program, the single night that we've put together, how you choose pieces and why and how they complement one another and what's the story that that's trying to tell. And then you've got the story of an entire season and a series, be it classical or pops or kids or the movie series now. What is it that you're trying to say over the course of a single year? And then when you look at multiple years together, how those all complement one another, but also challenge us um, to think differently um, and to, to hear new kinds of music. You know, it's, if you, any of us, I, I, would, I would venture to say, will do what I know I myself do when, when you're presented with a program book, symphony or any other art form, you flip through and you look for material that's familiar to you. You're just apt to go to things that are already known. And I'd argue that if that's all you do, then we're just performing pieces that you can listen to online. And so what is it then that we can that we can bring you into the hall to listen to Beethoven 9 or 
um, Rachmaninoff or Stravinsky or some of these favorites that we've been talking about, and then also couple that experience with some new music where maybe your eyes will be open to a different kind of um, listening or a way to perceive this art form uh, than you would have if you had just come to the to the standard. So it's always a challenge how it is that you bring these different components together. And as you say, Peggy, the, the, to do that for all these various series in a way that uh, brings it all under the umbrella of the Oregon Symphony is can be quite a feat. <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> and Peter, as, as somebody up on stage performing, having uh, a variety of uh, programs has got to be um, a lot of fun because if you were just performing, you know, the same sorts of work uh, year in and year out um, as an artist, that's not as fulfilling as if you're challenging yourself and challenging those around you. Right. I mean, we can just play Beethoven and Mozart and Haydn and Brahms and Tchaikovsky and Shostakovich and, I mean, you name it, Rachmaninoff for sure. Uh, we can play that all year. And we will grow as an orchestra, as a human being, as an orchestra. I think we'll be able to serve our community really well with just sticking to the music that's been uh, been popular, but also for really, really good reason that's been artistically interesting and challenging. But you're right. When we add to that pops and kids and youth concerts and movies and link up and all these different things that mm-hmm. we're doing, it does challenge us on stage. We have to become very quick as far as learning our music. We have to be very flexible as far as having different guest conductors that might want a completely different style of performance than what we're used to. Uh, We have to be very flexible as far as being able to play radically different styles of music like some of the shows where we have kind of a rock band or a rock style band in front of us where we might not use vibrato or where we're just expected to play um, really loud and really forcefully with our own instruments that might be completely different from what we would normally do for Mozart. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we have a lot thrown at us, and it, it makes us... I think that much more flexible and uh, good performers, but we also look forward to bringing all these different types of music to our community. We love this community. We we love being able to play for people in our in the Schnitzer, and we don't like you know what we started out with when we sat down here today. We don't care if they're dressed up, if they're in jeans, tuxes. As long as they come, as long as they come and hear our orchestra, that's what we care about. Yeah, and yeah, those new pieces that you're constantly learning keep you nimble. Mm-hmm. Certainly, uh, I hadn't, f- I had forgotten about the uh, different conductors that come in and understanding their personalities and temperaments. So that would be challenging sometimes. Yeah. Um, but uh, the performances that I've gone to see. And uh, even when I was in the balcony the last time and seeing the smiles on the faces of the performers as they're working with um, whoever it is on stage with them right. um, is kind of fun, too. I think that the, the conductor aspect of what we're going through at this, now, the, this stage right now 
is very important. It's important to us. It's important to the organization. It's important to the community. We get to see a number of different guest conductors. I mean, we always have a couple, but we're going to have quite a few more over this this year and next year because we're in a music director search. And I really have to say that Carlos has set the bar unbelievably high. That bar is just insanely high right now. He's such a great music director. He's such a great conductor. He has just this unbelievably wide range of uh, a wide palette, if you will, of what he brings to the orchestra and what he has us do. And we're seeing some really, really great conductors come through. And yet, I don't think that there's any one person yet that's quite up to what Carlos has kind of brought to this orchestra. I'm not sure. Maybe I'm in the minority here, but I haven't seen anybody yet that that I would say, that guy right (laughs) now. (laughs) Now, Carlos has no plans to retire, does he? He's announced his last contract. Oh, he Indeed. has? Yeah. So okay. after this season, he's with us for another two seasons. Okay. So through the 2021 mm-hmm. season and then 21-22, as Peter's alluding to, we will need to find a worthy successor and we're searching globally. So mm-hmm. every guest conductor who comes across our stage is a potential candidate for that position. You know, it's People think, oh, you've got years to plan for it. Well, <laughs> no, actually, you know, we talked about long sightlines earlier. This is, it's tremendously difficult because we're already booking into the 2021 season. And if we like somebody that we hear, then we're already on sale with the following season. If we want to bring them back a second time to hear, we're talking the following year after that. And then we would be hiring them to plan for future. I mean, you're talking 25, 26 before you get somebody in. You know, so, so it can get you know, really protracted, and it means that we're just intensely focused on uh, the, the quality of the people that we bring in, and then we test them out over the course of a week, as, as we're doing uh, this very week, and then uh, see how the orchestra responds, and um, yeah, and then we, we, we change the, p- potentially, the, the makeup of our, of our future seasons accordingly to, to, to how the music sounds. Now, Scott, you were in earlier this year with me, and you brought along uh, some musicians as well for, and I alluded to this, you brought along uh, percussionist Sergio Carreno. It was the the partnership with Intel in which they had created high-tech musical instruments. And uh, there was a performance at the uh, Consumer Electronics Show that I watched before you guys came in. And then I'd watched a couple of other videos. And that was fascinating to me, and I loved our discussion um, and the enthusiasm in which uh, all the musicians had with this, um, with these high-tech instruments. Give us a little bit about that, because that was... So it's a partnership that uh, was born a few years ago. Intel had this technology that they were experimenting with in various industries, one being music, and they sought us out as their partner. And so imagine uh, wearables, visual mapping, artificial intelligence. It allows artists to create music without using conventional instruments. And it's been through a number of iterations, uh, which we've had on stage with us at the Schnitz. Uh, We had out uh, in various community centers. And as you say, we performed alongside the CEO of Intel at the keynote address of the 
world-renowned consumer electronics show at Vegas uh, this past January. And where that goes next is still TBD, but our percussionists in particular have been partnering with their engineers to hone that technology. And it's been really fun. It had a reprise performance as part of our showcase at TEDx. We did three little vignettes, uh, one being this technology, second being a piece from the Lullaby Project, and the third being an example of how we do our work through a program called Music Now, where we bring classical music and live performance to seniors living with dementia. We break through thick layers of cognitive decline and allow even those who are suffering from this disease to self-express. And we're expanding all of these programs. It's just a taste of the kind of work that we can do, as we like to say, to move music forward. And it was a privilege to be asked to, to showcase those uh, vignettes uh, on the TEDx stage this past April. And we're going to continue all of these programs and more. The, um, the, the piece that you just mentioned about performing in front of dementia patients, is that part of that partnership with OHSU that I read about? In which OHSU is involved, yeah. um, Mary's Woods. Um, we have a number of partners, in, including uh, medical researchers, to, to understand how it is that music and the brain work together. Uh, Renee Fleming was our opening night in September, and while not directly part of this Music Now program I mentioned, she and we together did a program with OHSU for the um, Brain uh, Institute uh, there, and she talked about uh, how it is that the brain changes uh, in learning music, even in listening to music from a layman's perspective. Um, her brain has been imaged, as has uh, Carlos Calmer's as part of this project to understand how musicians who perform at the top of their game, how it is that their minds work. And there's a lot of interesting research out there, and I'm for any educators who are listening, not saying anything they don't already know and see every day with, uh, with students that they teach, um, seeing it in a, in a medical and a clinical setting and actually the, the parts of the brain light up in different ways is just further testament to the power of music. Absolutely. Moving forward, looking ahead, you talked about the arc of planning and I know that you are beyond already planning the next season, but mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about next season and... Uh, if you can share some special programming that's coming up, some special events or partnerships, even if you can mention a tidbit. So, I, so I'm thinking carefully about <laughs> what I can say here. We will be announcing publicly in February next season. I can say in general terms that we will be having um, more exciting multimedia and original commissions that are going to be never before seen, never before heard. Um, we have a lot of favorite standard music and a lot of household name guest artists whom regardless your relationship with classical music, people will know. Um, I'm not at liberty to share a whole <laughs> lot of details other than you know wait for the press release because it's gonna be a, a season really like none other. I'm looking forward to it. Scott and Peter, thank you so much for joining me today. And Peggy, this was fun, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for my conversation with Scott Showalter and Peter Frajola. 
If you've missed any of the previous podcasts, you can find them at our website at kink.fm. Be sure to like and subscribe to the Portland 50 podcast wherever you're listening. The Portland 50 is a podcast series celebrating King's 50th anniversary, and it's about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution, serving our community since 1950.